Welcome to the Milk and Motherhood podcast, where we're having an ongoing conversation about breastfeeding, postpartum, parenthood, the challenges these can present, and the hope we have for overcoming them. I'm your host, Therese Dansby. I'm a registered nurse, international board-certified lactation consultant, and homeschooling mom of three. I believe that navigating the rough waters of early motherhood with wisdom, grace, and humility can grow each of us into the mothers we long to be. Today's podcast interview is with Taylor Kulik. Taylor is an occupational therapist turned sleep and well-being specialist. She provides holistic education and support to families struggling with sleep. Her mission is to shift the current sleep paradigm and help parents to gain a deep understanding of their children's sleep needs and why they behave the way they do. Taylor's support prioritizes the parent-child relationship and is collaborative in nature. Her team offers one-on-one support, webinars, and e-courses. This conversation with Taylor was truly wonderful, and I think it's going to be incredibly helpful for you, whether your baby is sleeping great right now or whether you feel so alone in not sleeping at all. This episode is just jam-packed. I do want to give you a few disclaimers. Um, Taylor and I do talk about tongue ties and body work, and I owe you guys an episode on tongue ties. I know at this point I have had several guests mention them. I have several recorded episodes for next season that talk about them as well. I've kind of been skirting around the subject because this is primarily what I do in my one-on-one lactation consults, and it's just so nuanced. I've kind of been avoiding an episode, but I do owe you one. It is coming, um, just so you know. Also, at one point, we do talk about um, herbs for sleep for mother, and I do just want to reiterate that you never give herbs for a baby sleep before one year of age. Also, I mention having another adult support the baby sometimes between feedings when you're needing a longer stretch of sleep during a really rough season. I mentioned the baby can have a sip of water. Just want to give the disclaimer, this is a baby who's over seven or eight months of age. We don't want to give water to a baby under six months of age. Um, I think that's it. I think those are all the disclaimers. This is just a fantastic episode. And also I have so many links in the show notes. Do not skip those. Um, tons of sleep resources because this is just a subject that is so near and dear to my heart and very, very impactful on my motherhood journey as a whole. And if that's you, I just want to give you all the resources. So check out the show notes when you're done listening. You can always find me over on Instagram and on my website as well. And let's get going. All right. Welcome back to Milk and Motherhood. I'm here today with Taylor Kulik, and we are going to be talking about breastfeeding and sleep. So welcome, Taylor. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, the season one of this podcast has been all about laying a foundation for what is normal and what's not normal in postpartum and the fourth trimester. And of course, sleep is a huge part of that. So I'm really excited to talk today. Could you introduce us really quickly to yourself and your family? Yes. So my name is Taylor Kulik. Um, I have a husband and I have two kids. I have a daughter who is five and a half, almost six. And I have a son who is two and a half, almost three, um, which is crazy to think about how, how fast time flies by. Um, and we live in Utah, but I am an occupational therapist. And so, um, that was kind of my, my first career, I would say pre kids. And after I had my first child, I kind of moved into the, the, parenthood, motherhood, postpartum sleep space and got really interested in all of that. Um, and so, yeah, that that's who we are. We like to 
go be outdoors and, and explore and travel and all of that fun stuff. Yeah. I love it. I have had a lot of guests that changed career paths when they had their first Mm -hmm. kids, myself included. So, yeah. Well, (laughs) I think that like, when you realize you have a passion for supporting parents or mothers in some way, like most, most of us don't know that until we have the experience and see the lack of support that is there. And so it's almost like in, I mean, unless you just are really intuitive and like, you're around a lot of moms Mm -hmm. before you have kids, like you don't know, like, you don't know that's what you want to do. And that's your passion. So it makes sense in my opinion and motherhood changes you and it changes your passion. So, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, if you didn't have that support, a lot of us are like, well, I guess I'm going to provide that support because it's important and I value it. Right. So what did early motherhood and breastfeeding look like for you? Yeah. So my first child, my daughter, I had her breastfeeding went pretty well. It was pretty smooth. Um, we did struggle with a lot of food sensitivities, but other than that, like the actual like physical action of breastfeeding, mechanical action of breastfeeding was fine. Um, you know, I remember being at the hospital and my, I had a lactation consultant come in and she was like, you look like you've been doing this forever. She's latched perfectly. And, um, we did find out later that she had, she has tongue ties. She has oral ties. I didn't find out until she was three because at the time my son was born and I was getting him assessed and I knew a lot more about this. Um, but all that to say, it didn't impact her breastfeeding. Um, but sleep was a different story. I thought that she was a horrible sleeper. Like all I had was the knowledge that I had read on websites on, you know, what they call mommy blogs and from friends and families and family and the media, like movies and TVs, those representations of what a baby should be sleeping like. And so she slept decently for the first couple of months, which is really normal and common in the newborn stage. And then her sleep just got progressively worse after four months. And I did a little bit of sleep training. Um, I didn't respond to her. I let her cry and it didn't work and it felt really bad. And she was a very like highly sensitive, I call her spirited baby. And it just didn't feel good to me. So I had stopped that. I was looking for something else. I was looking for answers and solutions and something that felt in alignment though, with my values and with my intuition. And Basically, we got to the point probably around the time she was six months old where we were only able to bed share like she would not sleep um, apart from me she would not I had like a, a pack and play at the time at the foot of our bed, and I could not transfer her to the pack and play after I would do a night feed with her. And my husband was like just keep her in bed with us. And because that was the only way she was sleeping and he wasn't getting any sleep because we were all in the same room. And I was like, no, like, I can't, like, I'm a healthcare professional. I've been told that this is so dangerous. This is not like, this is not something that you can do. So I was very ashamed. And finally, I just gave into that because it was really, I didn't really have another choice. I mean, we weren't sleeping and she wouldn't go in her crib. Um, and at the same time, and even before this naps were the same kind of struggle I would spend. I remember spending hours in her dark nursery in the middle of the day, trying desperately to get her to sleep drowsy, but awake. I would not let her fall. Like she would fall asleep at the breast. And I thought that that was wrong. So I would wake her up and try to get her to go to sleep by herself in her crib. She wouldn't go to sleep. And we would just repeat this vicious cycle until I would finally just rock her to sleep or nurse her to sleep and transfer her. Um, and then she would sleep for like 10 minutes because she just wanted to be on me. And so it was just miserable. I mean, I would, it was just dark, like 
imagine being postpartum. I mean, I'm so, I'm sure so many moms listening have had this experience, but being postpartum and spending hours in a dark room, like alone with your baby, trying to get them to sleep in a way that they will not sleep. I mean, it's miserable. And so I had a lot of anxiety at this time, depression. Um, and I would say that most of that was, was fueled by the sleep stuff, the sleep pressure. And, um, so fast forward, we start bed sharing. I'm starting to kind of research bed sharing. I'm I'm finding people like professor James McKenna and and Helen Ball, um, who have done a lot of research and work surrounding the mother baby dyad and bed sharing, or they, a term that is often used is breast sleeping. Um, and I was like, Whoa, like where was this information for the last six months? Why has nobody told me about this before? Um, and so then I start getting a little bit more confident in bed sharing. You know, when I first started, I was very ashamed. I didn't want to tell anybody. I thought I was failing as a mom. I thought I like, I can't do the one thing that everybody always asks me about when I go out, how's your baby sleeping? Are they sleeping through the night? Is she a good baby? And my answer is no, (laughs) she's not sleeping through the night. So like when people are just asking you that question, and that's basically the only thing they're asking you as a new mom, it's easy to feel like that is what defines your success as a mom. Right. Um, so I felt like I was failing, but then I became a little bit more confident in bed sharing. And I started talking to other moms and kind of admitting that I was bed sharing. And it was really surprising to me that most of the moms, especially the moms with babies would also say, yeah, we bed share too. Or yeah, we bed share part of the time, right? Like my baby sleeps in the crib for the first part of the night, but then they come into bed with me in the early morning. And I thought it was really interesting how it was almost as if I was by, by admitting that I bed shared, I was like giving permission to these moms to also admit that because before that nobody was talking about it to me. So, um, yeah, so I started, we started bed sharing and things got so much better. And I mean, she still woke like a normal baby, but she went right back to sleep and she was calm. Um, and things were just so much better, so much so that by the time she was one, we had bought a king size bed and my husband had built a bed frame that sits on the floor, um, because we knew we were going to be a bed sharing family. Um, and so my mission kind of became to like educate, um, and not only educate, but like shift the perception of, of what baby sleep and child sleep is supposed to look like and support the families that don't want to sleep train and want a different way, but need help. I think that is so important to hear because like you, I came from the hospital. So I came from the NICU and all of these sick and premature babies are sleeping a lot. And so my oldest, who's almost nine, was a few weeks old. And my husband was like, when do babies start sleeping through the night? And I was like, oh, like around two months, you know, you know, two months came and went. And of course he wasn't sleeping through the night. And um, it was a little bit of a rude awakening. Of course, in hindsight, he was like probably my best sleeper. But at the time, my expectations were just so skewed. So your was your son really different, though? I feel like you've mentioned a different experience with him. Yeah. So I thought at the time that my daughter was a horrible sleeper. Mm-hmm. Looking back now, I know she really wasn't a bad sleeper at all. Um, and I'm using the term bad, you know, loosely. I don't really like that term, mm-hmm. but just for simplicity's sake, like she was sleeping like a normal baby. Like she slept really well the first few months, but she wanted to be near me. She wouldn't go to sleep by herself. She needed support. That was all fine. But like, she would give me good long stretches when she was with me, when she was near me. Um, my son was a totally different story. We went into, like, I knew a lot more about sleep. I was already in the sleep world. Um, I, 
we went in planning on bed sharing and he wouldn't even sleep bed sharing. Mm -hmm. Like he, Mm -hmm. for the first probably five months of his life, he was very, very restless and waking probably every 30 to 45 minutes. If that, I mean, it was rare for him to get in a deep enough stage of sleep that he wasn't like stirring and moving around the entire time he was sleeping. I had to stand up and rock him. He had to be upright. Um, it was rare that I could like ease, like after I put him to sleep upright, I could like ease myself back onto my, onto my bed and like lean back with him on my chest. Like that was the best case scenario. Um, and that went on for four or five months. I mean, there was no chance at all of him sleeping by himself. And this was because of, of, um, oral issues and discomfort and medical issues. I still don't even know like (laughs) exactly what was causing that. I think there were multiple things going on at that time, um, that we were trying to work through, but it was a, an entirely different humbling experience for sure. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to a lactation consultant friend yesterday. Um, sometimes the more, you know, like the harder it is. Oh yeah. (laughs) Because you just, you're like, okay, well, I know what's normal and what's not. And then here I get this kid that just challenges everything I know. My third yeah. husband like that. What turned the tide on his sleep? I think just time okay. um, and development. I mean, he it got better after probably the six month mark, but his the last half of his first year of life was still pretty rough. We also like we just dealt with a lot of um, health stuff. Like it wasn't any serious health stuff, but it was just little health things that added up and really impacted his sleep. We were dealing with, um, he had like a blocked tear duct in his eye, which led to a lot of eye infections. He developed a crazy dairy intolerance when he was 11 months old. Like he didn't have it before that I know of. He could have, like it could have been contributing to discomfort, um, but it was like new onset, like Hmm. literally screaming for three hours when I would have raw milk. Um, And so that was really difficult but yeah, it was just, it was time. I think, um, you know, we were working a lot with him on, he, this all started after, like he did have oral ties and he did get them released and it started after that. And the problem, mm-hmm. one of the main problems was that at the time I didn't know the importance of having body work prior to getting mm-hmm. the phrenectomy. And so we did a lot of body work after, and that helped a little bit, but it was just a long, you know, it was, it's a long process. I think a lot of parents don't realize, especially if you are, if you do have a baby that has feeding issues or oral ties, it's not usually just an overnight quick fix. Like you get the phrenectomy and your baby's good. Sometimes that happens for some families. Like they see a drastic difference overnight, but for the most part, it is kind of a long, um, it's a long course. It's, it's lots of body work and retraining your, your baby. And he also mouth breathes still like to this day, he still mouth breathes and there's just not a lot we can do about it at this age. So we're, we we're just, we've been dealing with a lot of little things. And I think just time has helped a lot. He's still not the best sleeper in the world, but he it's totally manageable at this point. Um, so yeah, just time and that the body work, the consistency with the body work and trying to figure out what issues he has going on. Yeah. And a lot of us learn those things the hard ways, but even when you know those things, there's still, there's so so many variables. Yeah. So scheduling and finances and resources. And um, I don't want anyone to think that just because they know everything, it all lines up perfectly. Um, I think, yeah, as a professional, I think I even had that expectation with my third and uh, it's just yeah. it's still real life. Well, I mean, I think with this kind of work, when it's holistic and responsive and 
really getting to the root cause of issues, it's never going like things are never going to line up perfectly because the nature of having children who are little human beings is that they're not predictable and that we can't control everything. And part of it is like recognizing that, right. That there are only some things that are within our control and we have to learn to like kind of release the things that are outside of our control and, and understand the difference between those two categories as well. Yeah, absolutely. One of the hardest parts of motherhood. I yeah. Think. They're, they're their own people. Could you share with us the capacity? What were you doing before you had your daughter? You were an OT. Were you in the hospital working with kids? I wasn't working with kids, um, but yeah, I was working in the hospital. I was kind of a per diem position at that time. So, um, or no, not before. That was after I had my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was working in the hospital. I was working in, I had a couple of different jobs. So I was working in rehab, um, home health. I was mostly working with adults at the time. So adults who were recovering from injury or illness um, or surgeries or, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, lo- I love that you have a hospital background because I feel like it's really unique to find somebody who has a foot in both worlds, kind of. I love the background. I love the physiology that I learned. I love knowing how the allopathic medical system works because when you're on the holistic side, it helps you help your patients navigate things a little bit differently than maybe somebody who's like only coming from a holistic background. So I am excited to talk to you because we kind of have that in common. So you mentioned at one point earlier that you kind of felt like you needed to define your success as a mom by how well your baby was sleeping. And I feel like that's a really common feeling, even if nobody verbalizes it. I mean, a baby's job is to eat and sleep. And you as an OT, like these are the baby's activities of daily living, right? Eating and sleeping. And if one of those isn't going well, um, it's incredibly difficult to feel like you're parenting well, because you want parenting to be so outcome driven the way that maybe another, another job is outcome driven. So yeah, a baby's job is literally to eat and sleep. And there's a wide range of normal, which we're also not exposed to. And it can feel really overwhelming to navigate because you don't even know what you don't know until you're in it. So before we dive into all of like what's normal and what's not, can you define like room sharing, co-sleeping, bed sharing, some of the terms that you use? Yeah. So co-sleeping is this overarching term, um, that means you're basically sleeping near your baby or your child. It can refer to children too. Um, and then within that kind of umbrella term, there are some more specific definitions. So one of them is room sharing, which is what it sounds like. Basically you're sharing a room with baby, um, or child. And then another term that you'll hear a lot is separate. So I don't usually use this term, but separate surface co-sleeping, which is basically room sharing, but your baby's on a different surface. So they're in their own crib or a bassinet. And then you have bed sharing, which is baby is on the bed with you. Um, and the thing to know, I think is that a lot of like, a lot of times when you're hearing from more of the like meta in the medical world or the American Academy of Pediatric pediatrics, and they're talking about bed sharing and the dangers of bed sharing. A lot of times these research studies that they're referencing, um, showing, you know, the apparent dangers or risks of, of bed sharing it, they actually lump multiple things into that bed sharing category. So they'll lump Um, a a parent sleeping with their baby on the couch or on a rocking chair or a recliner 
into bed sharing. And so I think that's just important to know because we really have to be able to define our terms. I define bed sharing as a baby um, and a parent in a bed together, but mm-hmm. other people will take bed sharing and have all of these different terms and situations um, there that are more risky and that aren't um, aren't recommended by people that advocate for safe bed sharing. Um, and then we have the safe sleep seven. So let me pull that up real quick. So I don't make sure I don't miss anything, but Basically, the safe the safe sleep seven is a really nice summary of um, just how to keep your how to know one if bed sharing is an option for you is a safe option for you and um, what things you need to be considering if you are thinking about bed sharing and so the first three are involving mom. So it's one mother is non-smoking. She's sober and she is exclusively breastfeeding. And then the next three are about baby. So we want baby to be healthy and full term. We want baby to be sleeping on their back and we want them lightly dressed and not swaddled. And then the last one is a combination of both mom and baby are sharing a safe sleep surface. And so that's just a really nice summary. It doesn't go into a lot of details about like the specifics of bed sharing, but like, for example, in that last one with the safe sleep surface, That means that the bed is firm enough. It means there are no blankets and pillows near baby's face. It means that if mom has long hair that could potentially um, get tangled up and it's tied back. There are no, uh, what are those, those pulley things on the windows? (laughs) There are no cords around. So no suffocation hazards, um, things like that. And even like no cracks between like the headboard and the mattress and the wall and the mattress. Yeah, I remember finding those my middle child, I think, is the same age as your oldest. And I remember learning those things right around the same time. And it's just a game changer because, yeah, sleeping on the couch or the recliner is the most dangerous thing you can do. Right. But you feel a lot of parents choose it because they're told that bed sharing is so dangerous. And they're like, okay, yeah. well, at least I'm not bed sharing. Or so they I, don't yeah. choose it, but it just happens because they're so exhausted yes. and they're trying to get their baby back to sleep by rocking or by, you know, rocking in the rocking chair. And they fall asleep because they're exhausted. I did that all the time with my first. I would fall asleep with her in the rocking chair on accident because I was so terrified to have her in bed with me. Yeah, I did that with my first. um, And before I learned to to sideline nurse, which is a game changer at night, especially. But I remember sitting in the rocking chair and I did. I like slumped over and fell. So it wasn't even that we were reclined. I was like slumped over him. And at that point, I was like, I'm bringing you to bed and we're going to be sidelining because yeah. this was dangerous and scary. And I think the La Leche League maybe came up with a safe sleep seven. Yeah. And then Dr. James McKenna talks about it a lot too. So yeah, he has um, like an entire page on his website, co-sleeping.nd.edu that goes into okay. more detail about his um, his co-sleep, his safe bed sharing recommendations. Yeah. And, and a it, resource. Yeah. It's, I, I will link that in the show notes because it's so important. And I feel like the AAP recommends room sharing mm-hmm. for, they recommended it for six months for a while. And then they went up to a year and did they recently go back to six months now? I, I cannot remember. They I cannot keep up with again. the specific numbers. Yeah. I'm not sure if it jumped back or if it's still a year. Okay. And I also like try to keep up with the Canadian Pediatric oh. Association. I think the Canadian Pediatric Association for a long time was still recommending six months. So I'm not sure at this point what the AAP recommends. Okay. But yeah, they, I know that all everybody pretty much recommends room sharing um, for at least the first six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to reduce the risk of SUDS and yeah. be responsive to babies' feeding cues and things like that. So um, so you actually did a 30-minute sleep module for our breastfeeding course. And I remember watching it when we got ready to launch and my 
third baby was eight months old at the time. And just, it was so validating again, to just hear what's normal. I'm not failing, but it was also helpful for me to remember the red flags that you talk about. And I know you have a podcast episode on this and I will link to it. Um, because in the holistic world, I feel like there was also, um, I would say like, man, my baby's not sleeping well. Like, what am I missing? What am I doing? And there, everybody would just say like, are you already bed sharing? And we're already doing all the things, but he's waking up. Like you said, he's never settling. He's just always restless. He's sleeping so lightly. I feel like he sleeps worse when I'm in the bed with him. Um, and so I needed to remember those red flags too, because my gut was telling me like, this isn't normal. But my brain was trying to tell me, like, you're just not doing it right. <laughs> you know, you're missing something. And the more I talked to people, the more I realized, like, no, I'm not, I'm not missing something. Like, this really isn't right. And I needed to be validated in that. So can you, can you really quickly remind us what's normal in the first year of infant sleep? And then we can go into red flags a little bit. Yeah. So there is a wide range of what is normal. Um, so a lot of times you will have a baby who sleeps pretty well, um, quote unquote, well in the first couple of months, you know, they might wake a couple of times a night to feed, but they're usually going right back to sleep after a feed. Um, they often will, these are, you know, young babies, they don't, they still have a stimulus barrier. So they have this something called a stimulus barrier where their brain is actually filtering out any excess stimuli that they don't need to attend to. They lose that around three or four months. And so that's why at this age, we'll often see babies start to get more wakeful and more, um, alert. Like they, you know, you might have a two month old who can sleep wherever. It doesn't matter if your toddler's screaming in the background, they're going to sleep. But then at three or four months, all of a sudden they can't take a nap. Um, or they're having a hard time staying asleep when that toddler is screaming in the same room. Um, so you, we often see sleep start to get more wakeful around four months. Sometimes it could be a little bit before. I don't like putting like, you know, I, the sleep progressions, like we have the four month sleep progression and the six month and whatever. I don't love that. I don't love that because while there's a lot of truth to it, it's never, it's not always those specific ages. And I think parents, um, like to have answers and they like to have the the guidebook. And so they think that those age delineations for when they should experience those disruptions um, are set in stone and they're not. So sleep can get worse a little bit before that sleep might never get worse. You might have, you might luck out and have a baby that just mm -hmm. sleeps really well. Right. So that's normal too. Um, but what we generally see is that it is normal for babies to wake to feed in the first year, often even beyond. Um, so it is, it is normal for them to wake and, and nurse or bottle feed, whichever you're doing every few hours, sometimes even every couple of hours in terms of bed sharing, if you are breast sleeping with your, your child, so you're bed sharing and breastfeeding them. Um, it's very common for babies to wake even more frequently, turn, kind of find the breast, suckle a little bit, go right back to sleep. It's like not even a full wake. A lot of the times it's kind of just, they're rousing a little bit. They're finding the breast to get them back to sleep. That's really normal. I see a lot of moms concerned about that because I talk a lot about like hourly wakes and, um, you know, that's kind of a red, it can be a red flag if your baby's waking hourly and these breast sleeping babies often are waking hourly, but they're just finding the breast and they're going right back to sleep. It's not something where they're crying out or they're hard to settle. So that is normal. Um, what else? So I talked about frequent night feeds. It's, it's 
normal for sleep to change and fluctuate and ebb and flow throughout that first year, even the first couple of years. So a lot of times we go into parenthood thinking that sleep is really linear. Like our babies will start off sleeping really poorly. They'll be wakeful. They'll have to feed a lot, but then within a couple of months, it'll just keep improving and improving and improving. And soon they'll be sleeping through the night. Well, that's not really the case for most babies because of what we just talked about earlier. They have these developmental milestones and leaps and, and progressions and cognitive changes and illness and teething and separation anxiety, all of these things that are happening to them um, and in their brain that have the potential to disrupt sleep. So we will usually, unless your baby is like very chill and like not sensitive to change at all and super adapt adaptable, you will likely see fluctuations throughout that first year, especially um, for many children, it's going to be the first two to three years. And what that means is that you, your baby might wake two times in the first few months to eat. And then when they're six months old, they might be waking three or four times to eat. And then it can kind of go back and forth. So a lot of parents think that's a problem. Like, oh no, there's something wrong with my baby. They're not getting enough milk. Now they're waking more, not necessarily. That's just because they're developing. They might be going through a growth spurt, um, or it could be one of those developmental things that we just talked about. They might need more comfort because they're feeling stressed or they're, they're, you know, there's something new in their environment that they're learning about, or they're learning a new milestone. Um, it's really interesting actually, because there was a research or not, well, it was research, but it was like a, a survey, a survey to parents about infant sleep in the first year and how, like how many wakes and, and things like that. And you know, I think most parents who maybe don't know so much about sleep would expect that most wakes were happening in the first few months. But the reality was that most parents were reporting more wakes from four to 12 months. Um, and so at that point, wakes do usually increase. And if you don't know that and don't expect that, then you see that as a problem, right? Um, did I miss something? So wakes, feeding at night, a lot of variability based on development. Yeah. That's all yeah. super normal. And I think that is the, I think that's just the message that there oh, is a wide range support. of normal. Needing mm -hmm. support. A lot of babies are not capable of putting themselves to sleep. A lot of babies mm -hmm. do need to be supported to sleep. And that's not, that's also not inherently a problem. Mm -hmm. That was uh, same with my first, I was like drowsy, but awake, yeah. you know, <laughs> I don't know where would, that phrase started. I hate but, that phrase. It, yeah makes me so angry. Yeah. I had, I had one kid that would fall asleep drowsy, but awake, but the other two, no way. Yeah. I mean, totally crazy. No. making. Did you read that BBC sleep article that maybe came out like a year ago? I'm going to link to that in the show notes. It might've been quoting about. the survey that you're talking about because I was shocked at how much, yeah, parents were reporting that their babies were waking even after sleep training, quote unquote, yeah. with the like extinction crying method, their babies were technically actually still waking. So um, I'll link to that because that was really interesting. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's hard. You said between four and 12 months, they're often waking more. And that's often when your meal train has ended, you're back at work, right. the world has forgotten that you just birthed a human and I they know. just expect you to be back to normal. And I know I was just talking to my friend about this the other day who just had a baby. And I like it. I wish that it was reversed. I mean, obviously we wish that like it was reversed, but it's, it would be so nice if like we could have our recovery, um, or not our recovery, but all of that just reversed, like our meal trains in the second mm -hmm. half of the year, the first year, um, yeah. and all of that. But it's almost seems unfair that like 
if we do, if we're lucky enough to have support, which we all should have support, but we get most of that support in like the first month when oftentimes it's actually pretty easy aside from your physical recovery. Like oftentimes your baby is just sleeping all day and you don't have to do that much work. So yeah, I was just talking about that. Yeah. You need, you need like a second meal train, right? I should start that with, we have one in the first trimester of pregnancy, right when baby's born. And then also at four months. (laughs) Yes. I actually was reading a postpartum book recently that referred to, because you hear about the fourth trimester, but it was also referencing the fifth and sixth trimester. Mm. And I was like, oh, well, genius. Yeah. The whole first year is still just a continuation of multiple changes happening very quickly. Mm -hmm. So can you talk? So it's normal for there not to be a normal, but there are also sleep red flags. So can yes. you kind of go through like what, if, if your baby's doing this, like you need to investigate something else? Yes. So I will talk about um, quantity of wakes, but I think that it's also important to talk about when you're considering quantity to also consider quality of sleep. So I always say, you know, if your baby is waking consistently every hour or less, um, and really doesn't get any longer stretches than an hour and a half or two, then that is a potential red flag. But I also just mentioned that when a mother and baby are breast sleeping, it can be very normal for your baby to stir, latch on, go right back to sleep and do that every hour or so. So that is not necessarily a red flag on its own. Parents who have babies of red flags know um, mm-hmm. these babies are often very uncomfortable. They are hard to settle. They are restless. They are moving a lot. They cannot get comfortable. Um, they might not like, or they might not be able to sleep flat. Like these babies might need to be held or elevated. Um, they are waking frequently. You just, you just know when your baby is uncomfortable, you know, when your baby is not getting restful sleep, which is different than waking every hour, latching and going right back to sleep and being calm and being in that restful stage of sleep. Um, so those are some major red flags. Um, if you're, if you have a baby that is having any feeding issues or difficulties, if they have oral ties, if they have a reflux, um, if they're mouth breathing, those are, I wouldn't call those that they are red flags, but they're different red flags because those are often some causes of the red flags that are happening. So I would also um, say that those are red flags and that you should try to get support for those things as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that parents know when they're dealing with it, but I think it still took me a while to accept it because everybody's tired, you know, it's like, Oh, are you not sleeping at night? Oh no, I'm not sleeping at night either. You know? And you're like, okay, maybe I'm just not handling this as well as somebody else. And you're yeah. so tired that you're not thinking clearly either. You know, in hindsight, I'm like, oh my gosh, like we were a mess and I knew something was wrong, but I wasn't addressing it maybe as quickly as I could. Yeah. Have. I think it's, I'm, you're right. I think it's more of, I think parents feel it deep down that something mm-hmm. isn't quite right. They might not acknowledge it like in cognitively, or they might be second guessing themselves because they're having people tell them, no, this is just what babies do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like a deep down feeling of, I know there's not something quite right going on right now. Like this is not normal. This is not peaceful. Not that it's always going to be peaceful. Um, but like normally your baby should be sleeping. So I often ask, how is your baby sleeping between feeds? Because one that normalizes feeding 
at night um, and waking to feed at night. But really, we do want the quality of sleep to be good in between feeds. Um, so it shouldn't take a super long time for baby to go back to sleep at night. And they should be sleeping pretty soundly in between feeds. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Are there red flags for naps too? I mean, um, like super short naps or only needing to be held after a certain age? Are those red flags? Those aren't red flags. No. I mean, you might okay. see some of the same, some of the same red flags presenting in naps, like the discomfort and the restlessness. Um, but short naps are developmentally normal from about three to six months could be a little earlier for your baby could go on a little longer, but generally three to six months, short naps are actually very common and normal. Um, and babies usually begin to take longer naps on their own. And then being held for naps is super common, super normal. I often don't see babies even willing to take like independent naps in the crib until six months. And some babies not even that, you know, not even then will they. So those things like needing the, the connection and the closeness, those aren't red flags. Those are just normal behavioral things. But if, if naps are very restless or there is some discomfort or difficulty settling, those could be red flags just like they would be at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That, and again, I'm like, I, I cannot hear that enough because I was homeschooling. My oldest was, you know, legitimately old enough to be school aged. And uh, my baby didn't have a nap routine until eight months easily. Yeah. And, and that's fine. I was just yeah. like, what, how are all these other parents doing this? Well, usually it's, it, it can be challenging to get on kind of a nap routine or like kind of a nap schedule until baby is on two naps. And that often doesn't happen until eight months or nine months or something. So, um, and the other thing too, to think about, this is what I often tell parents if they, if they aren't sure, excuse me, if their baby is having, is displaying red flags is I ask them one, it depends on where they're sleeping, right? Like it's hard to tell if your baby has red flags, if they're in the crib, because then I would ask, well, is it a, like a, a health related thing? Is it a discomfort related thing? Or is it that they need connection and contact with you. Um, so what I always say is if, if baby is sleeping, if you're trying to get baby to sleep away from you, let that go for a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can co-sleep with them, bed share with them, sleep with them right next to you on a separate surface. If you need to contact nap with them, then see what sleep looks like. If they're sleeping really well, when, once they're in bed with you, it's likely not a red flag. If they won't even sleep in bed with you well, then it's a red flag most likely, which is what I experienced. Yes, I would second that also. I, yeah, it was like, I'm checking all the safe sleep boxes. He's right here and he's not sleeping any better Yeah. me. Where do you start when you're in a place like that? When you think, okay, so this isn't normal, now what? I mean, it's really hard because there aren't very many integrative practitioners who really understand the ins and outs of sleep. And so like, I'm one of them and I have a teammate who, you know, takes one-on-one, one-to-one -on -one, one -one support. So if you do have like a specific question about, you know, is this a red flag and where do I start? Because it could be multiple things, right? Booking a call with my teammate would be like a 30 minute call even can help point you in the right direction. Of course, we are not present with you to be able to actually address whichever the, whatever the issue is. And that's kind of the, the problem because like, for example, if you have a baby who has oral ties, you have to find a provider who will address oral ties. However, it's not just one provider and you might go to a dentist who does oral ties, but they might not tell you about the importance of body work. Right? So it's really, it's like parents are between a rock and a hard place because 
we're trying to advocate for our babies and we're trying to do the right thing. And we know that we need more support, but there aren't very many people that are, that can give us that support. So I would start with one, a consult if needed to see like what potentially the issue is and what to get addressed. Because like, if we're dealing with a food sensitivity issue, then you need to see a food, like a food sensitivity specialist. But if we're dealing with like oral ties or mouth breathing or something like that, then maybe we're looking at, um, well, we're looking at oral ties. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can start with a lactation consultant and oftentimes, um, lactation consultants will have a network, like a local network of who they refer to, what body work providers they refer and what dentists they refer to for the oral stuff. Um, but it's hard because not all lactation consultants, not all dentists, not all body workers have the training in oral ties. So you have to find one that has that training. And so one thing you can do is go on like local mommy Facebook groups and ask around like, Hey, who has experience with oral ties? Who did you see? Do you recommend them? What was your experience, et cetera? That's one thing you can do. I also have, um, in my, on my Instagram, I have a red flags highlight where I link the podcast episode. So there is a podcast episode that I talked to um, a PT who specializes in oral ties. And she also kind of gives some guidance of like where to start and where to start looking for support. Um, But in that highlight, I think I have some directories linked. There's some like tongue tie professional directories linked. Mm -hmm. So that's another place to start. I would say if you suspect it's some sort of oral tie, um, then start at a tongue tie directory, you can, it can be a dentist. It could be a body worker. It could be a lactation consultant, because usually if they know what they're doing, they will have a network to refer to. So even if they, like, they aren't your first step, they will point you to the person who needs to be your first step, but it is really complicated. um, And unfortunately there's not really an easy answer right now. Yeah. Yeah. In a perfect world, you can enter that circle kind of anywhere and people Mm -hmm. will be really good about referring, but that's hard to find. How do, how do oral ties affect sleep from your point of view? I mean, my thought is maybe they're not transferring enough. Maybe they're swallowing a lot of air. um, Maybe they're mouth breathing and general kind of airway issues. Is there anything Mm -hmm. else that contributes to sleep specifically with ties? Yes. Let me answer that. Let me just, I just thought of another from your last question, I, I wanted okay. to mention this, a really good place to start mm-hmm. as well for any issue is, um, fascial work. So yes. CFT cranial, craniosacral fascial therapy, um, any baby can pretty much any person can benefit from this, but this is fascia is a really underlooked area. And so if you can find a CFT provider in your area, that's a great starting point too. um, to just release all of that fascia and really get a better idea of what's going on in the mouth. And it can really help with like discomfort and tension and all of that. Um, okay. To answer your question about how do oral ties impact sleep, all of the above. So Mm -hmm. we know that oral ties can impact feeding. So if it's impacting latch or the ability of a baby to transfer milk from the breast to the mouth, then there are feeding issues and potentially baby is struggling to get enough milk to fill their bellies. Right. So these are often the babies that you're seeing that, um, are actually nursing really frequently, like excessively frequently because they're not getting enough milk. 
milk. Um, these are the babies that might have trouble gaining weight. Not all, not all tied babies have trouble with weight gain. So that's a really important distinguishing factor, but many do. So if you have a baby that is having a hard time transferring milk, then that might result in them waking more frequently because their bellies are empty and they're hungry and they need to feed more frequently because it's really exhausting. So if you don't have an opt, if a baby doesn't have an optimal latch, they're working really hard to transfer, um, the breast milk. And it's, a, it's very, um, exerting. It takes a lot of energy. They'll often fall asleep before they can get enough. And then they'll wake up again and feed again because they're still hungry. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like this vicious cycle of, they just need to keep eating because they just can't get enough and they're running out of energy. So that's one way that it can present is just simply making them wake more to feed. Um, but yes, then we also have potential airway issues. Again, these airway issues don't always happen with tied babies, but some babies who have ties are mouth breathing. Um, and when we're mouth breathing, we are, so the way that like physiologically the mouth and the tongue posture is supposed to be mouth is supposed to be closed. Lips are supposed to be sealed and the tongue is supposed to be suctioned at the roof of the mouth. This activates the parasympathetic nervous system. It helps our body to relax and calm down and it protects our airway. So when we are mouth breathing, we're not getting any of those benefits and they're not even benefits. They're physiological norms. And so if you have a baby who has their mouth open and their tongue is not suctioned up, then their airway is compromised. And, um, as well, they're not able to get into that, that really calm, relaxed state quite as easily. Um, this is also why a lot of tongue tied babies suck their thumb because it is kind of a substitute for that tongue being pressed up against the roof of the mouth, the palate and getting them into the parasympathetic nervous system or nervous state. So breathing issues, for sure. There can be breathing issues. If you have a, I've worked with babies before who have ties and, um, they, were having a lot of sleep issues and they went to go get further assessed by specialists and they found that their airways were tiny. Like mm -hmm. they were so restricted that like this one family in particular, um, came to me and I told, I immediately said like, this is a huge red flag because their baby could not sleep on their back. Mm -hmm. They kept rolling over to their belly. And then they mm -hmm. were being told from people just sleep train, just leave them in the crib, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. Right. And Thankfully, they went and got assessed by an OT who specializes in this area. Baby's airway, airway was tiny. And that OT said, if you had just followed everybody's advice and just left them alone on their back in their crib, like she could have, her life could have been in danger. Um, and so that is part of the issue as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, additionally, so it's a lot, it's all kind of connected, right? But reflux as well. Reflux is often caused by oral ties and could be, and, um, latch issues. And so that is another just contributing factor that could make babies more wakeful. These are often the babies too, that can't sleep flat is these babies with reflux, but it can all be connected. It doesn't have to all be connected. Reflux can be caused by food sensitivities. Reflux can be caused by gut issues. Like that's why it's so complicated because all of these issues have many, many, many causes and they're multifactorial, but they all can be connected to tongue ties as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I, I kind of thought those were the reasons, but I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything. Um, and babies are so smart because I also had one that would, he, he slept better on his stomach, but he slept in such what looked to me like a really uncomfortable position, you know, like really arched. And um, yeah. uh, of course, I would look at him and be like, I don't want you in that position, but I couldn't force him out of it. That would have been dangerous too. He was just opening his airway. Right. Um, but eventually we adjusted. So 
So we talked about what's normal. We've talked about what's not normal. So I love that you talk a lot about just like, what can we do? Like literally, what can I do to get through the day? Like sleep deprivation is torture. Um, you feel, I mean, anybody listening who's done this for months and months with um, a baby with red flags just knows that, I mean, it is so hard to get through the day. So how do you care for yourself when you're just in the trenches? Like you've started body work, you've started this, you've started that. But like at the end of the day, you're not sleeping at night. How do you mm-hmm. deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard. And I know this is when people often come to me and they just want to throw in the towel and they're like mm-hmm. mad at me because I'm sharing this information. <laughs> and they're like, then what do you like? What solutions do you mm-hmm. have to offer us if not sleep training? I'm like, first of all, if you want to sleep train your child, that's your choice. I'm just here to give you all the information sleep training. Your child isn't going to address those underlying issues. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there's so much that we can do and it doesn't make things perfect. Like it doesn't mean that our life is going to be perfect, but remembering, first of all, that it is a season, it is a phase of life and it will pass. Um, sometimes our babies do just need the time to develop and to mature a little bit. Um, and, but this is a time where I would say, you know, really, 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 you have to get help. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that looks like for you. That's going to be different for everybody. But I, I say to parents, if you were in the hospital and you needed somebody to take care of your child or your children, who would you call? Like in the case of an emergency, because this is an emergency. I mean, when you're not mm-hmm. sleeping at night and you have children to care for a baby or multiple children to care for, this is an emergency. So you need to call those people and ask them for help. Maybe you need to hire help. Maybe you need to, if you can, maybe you need to shift your um, budget around and hire some help if you don't have anybody nearby. Again, I know this isn't an option for everybody, but like we have to still talk about it. There are ways to make things like this work. Um, Ideally, people would have family or friend support around to help them. Um, You know, even if a lot of us have these elderly neighbors who like, love babies and like, don't really do much during the day. And they'd probably love to help if they're just asked. And Mm -hmm. I think we're so, we're so scared of asking people for help because we don't want to be rejected, but also like, we don't like asking for help. We're prideful, but this is a time where you really have to put that pride aside and ask for help. Um, partners, you know, if you have a, a spouse or significant other who can help more, obviously like the main issue is that our husbands are going to work during the day usually. But like when I was in the trenches with my son, um, my husband thankfully had a flex schedule. So he could basically work like whatever. I mean, he had to work during the day, but he could shift his schedule as needed as long as he was getting his work hours in. And so he would go in, um, he liked to go into work really, really early, but when I was really struggling, he had to go to work. He had to go into work later. So he would go to work at eight or nine instead of six or seven. Um, and he would wake up at like five o'clock or four 30 or five o'clock in the morning, take over. Um, I hadn't gotten almost any sleep at this point, but then I was able to sleep for the next two to three hours uninterrupted. And that for me was life-saving. I mean, you have no idea until you're in the trenches how much two or three uninterrupted hours of sleep, how much that can help you. So I think it doesn't always have to be like you don't need a full eight hour uninterrupted stretch. You have to start small with the little wins with what you can achieve. And if that is a two or three hour nap during the day, that's going to be so helpful to you. Maybe you ask a friend to come over for two hours in the morning to watch your kids, right? Um, nutrition, nutrition is so important. Have, have a meal train, have, you know, ask for help. Um, 
have somebody help come over and help you on the weekends meal prep for the week or for the next couple of weeks and put meals in the freezer that you can just pop into the instant pot or the crock pot um, and have nourishing meals ready for you to go order. Like there's so many companies now that deliver meals, right? Order, find a good company that like has pretty healthy food and, and order from there for a while, um, have cleaning help, have cooking help. Those things are so important. And I think new parents often don't budget for that because they just kind of see it as out of reach. But at the same time, a lot of these new parents are spending hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars on decorating a nursery Mm -hmm. to make it look cute. Right. And what's more important, having a cute nursery that your baby might not sleep in anyways, or having support. And it's a short time, even if it's for the first six months, maybe a year. I mean, that's like longer. I feel like not many parents are like totally sleep deprived for the entire first year. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're not getting great sleep, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking of like the every 30 minute wakes. Yeah. Um, and prioritizing your own sleep. So what can you do that doesn't impact baby so that you can optimize the sleep when you are able to get it? Um, so making sure you're limiting screen time at night, paying, you know, paying attention to sleep hygiene, limiting screen time at night, dimming the lights before bed, using blue light blocking glasses. If, if you do need to be on electronics, um, getting ready with your baby. I love this one. I call this front loading your day, getting ready for bed with your baby, depending on when your baby goes to bed, but getting ready for bed, brushing your teeth, doing whatever you need to do. Um, Even if you don't go to sleep right then, having the option to go to sleep whenever you're ready to and trying to have any like chores or things that need to be done, like have them try to have them done before dinner or right after dinner, if possible. I know this isn't always possible. Um, That way you can go to bed early. So this is, you know, I think a lot of moms and I get it because I've, I've been there and I do this too, but a lot of moms really like, like to stay up late because it's Mm -hmm. what they feel like is their only time for themselves during the day, which is totally understandable. But when you are in the midst of severe sleep deprivation and you know, you may not get good sleep that night, you have to prioritize sleep and you have to go to bed early. You know, sometimes being a mom and getting, make sure, make sure you're getting enough sleep means going to bed at seven or eight o'clock. You know, it's just the reality of it. Um, yeah. So Oh, and the other thing is, especially postpartum, making sure that you, I mean, if possible, one, you're taking care of your health and eating well, but if you can getting some labs done and getting into, to work with a, um, functional practitioner, an integrative practitioner, because a lot of moms postpartum, it's very, very common to have nutritional deficiencies, hormonal imbalances, um, mineral deficiencies, et cetera. And it's, it's called postnatal depletion. And we all have pretty much all of us have it unless we're really being intentional pre um, prenatally and even before we conceive and then postpartum as well. And so making sure that all of your, your numbers are good, your labs are good and seeing where your deficiencies are so that you can start to address them is huge um, with energy levels. Even if you're not getting much sleep, I mean, it really does make a huge difference. And I think so many people don't realize how much difference that makes, but like, if you are getting if you are getting, you know, six to eight hours of sleep in the course of a day, even if it's broken, um, most people, like if you are well-nourished and you don't have any imbalances or anything or deficiencies, usually you can, you can get through pretty, pretty well. You know, it might, you might need to take naps during the day with your baby, but, um, 
I talk to parents sometimes who their baby wakes like twice a night Mm -hmm. and they're like, I'm so sleep deprived. I don't know how to get through this. And to me, that's a red flag for the parent, right. For Mm -hmm. the mom, because I'm thinking if your baby's waking twice a night, like, yeah, I know that's hard. I know it's hard to be woken up in the middle of the night, but that means you're still, you still should be getting at least six or seven hours of sleep at night. If you're priority prioritizing sleep, that shows me if you're that exhausted, that shows me there is something going on with your health. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Amanda Montalvo and I have an interview earlier in season one about this because yeah, it's just, it's so easy to, to miss or to not, um, or to think, I know with my second, I just thought, well, of course I feel horrible. Like I'm so tired. And then when we finally did start sleeping and I still felt horrible, I was like, Oh, there's something else going on here. Also. So, um, and it it is, so I just want to emphasize, it is so hard to ask for help. I think at the beginning, maybe you don't even know that you need help. And then for me, it was hard to ask for help because I was like, somebody's going to think that I'm not a good enough mom because I can't handle this by myself. And I mean, we just, we weren't meant to handle this by ourselves. It's it's very much like a current cultural thing that we all just like white knuckle through these hard things without asking for help. But I have had to ask for help with more and more with each subsequent kid. And it is always surprising how the people who jump out of the woodwork aren't necessarily even your best friend or your family members. You know, it's like this random person in my homeschool group who has margin and is bringing me a meal every two weeks. I mean, it's really, it's really cool to ask for help and kind of see who, um, pops up and then with the cleaning I it was something I envied for a long time with other people um because you know they give you an estimate they're like two hundred dollars for your whole house and I finally found somebody who um used cleaner products but also would just charge by the hour and so I would say like just here's my list of priorities and do whatever you can do in two hours and so once a month for forty dollars I have you know my floors mopped and my bathrooms clean so it doesn't have to be totally unattainable, like all or nothing. Yeah. That's Um, awesome. When I was postpartum with, I just remembered this because you, what you said triggered this memory for me when I was postpartum with my son, um, this was before we moved to Utah, but in Pennsylvania, I had this really great friend, um, who had a teenage daughter. She was like, I think she was 12 at the time. She might've been 13, but I actually paid her, but like she was 13 and like, I had to go pick her up and stuff. So I didn't have to pay her as much as I would have to pay Mm -hmm. somebody else. I paid her fair, fairly for being like 12 or 13, but she would come and clean my house for me for a couple of hours. And I would would pay her like seven bucks an hour. And she would even, I would have her be like a mother's helper for me too, mm-hmm. um, during the day. And I would pay her seven bucks an hour and it was cheaper than hiring someone like off of, you know, like a, a, a person in school, like a college student or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it, you can make it work, like find a kid in your neighborhood to come clean your house mm-hmm. or something like for a little bit cheaper, go pick them up, you know? Um, yeah, for sure. And the cleaning thing, I will say too, I know that feels so unattainable for people. It felt unattainable for me for a while, but it it felt extravagant. Like Mm -hmm. this is something that I am capable of doing. I'm capable of cleaning my house. So I shouldn't be spending money on this. But when I really thought about it, I thought about how one, um, that time that I'm spending cleaning my house, I hate every second of it. I hate cleaning. It's so stressful for me. Um, but also it's time I could be spending with my kids, enjoying my kids. It's time I could be spending on my business and helping others. Um, it's time I could be spending with my husband and, um, 
so that kind of shifted things for me a little bit because I'm the kind of person, like when I know that I have a to-do list of cleaning stuff in my head, or there's a mess somewhere that I know at some point I have to get to that mess. I have to clean the floors at some point I'm stressed about it until I do it. It causes me a lot of stress. And so just having in the back of my head, knowing that, okay, once a month, we don't even do that much once a month. Okay. In a couple of weeks, at least like it's like, I can clean the floors, but it's okay if I don't get to them because in a couple of weeks, somebody else is going to be here to clean my floor. So it's not the end of the world. Right. And that alone alleviated so much stress for me and made my quality of like life as a mother so much better. And like we pay. Yeah. So get quotes shop around because we have gotten some outrageous quotes. When Mm -hmm. I was looking for a new housekeeper, I was quoted like 250 to $350 for, Mm -hmm. to clean the whole house. I found somebody that also charges hourly. He clean, they clean our whole house though. And, um, I mean, I usually pay about $120 for them to clean once a month, which if you think about it, like there's a lot of, I don't know. Cause I haven't had cable in a, I've never paid for cable in my life, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure that cable costs that much every month, if not more. And we don't have cable. So like, you know, we could have cable and like watch TV and stuff of which we don't want to do, or we could have our house cleaned by someone else once a month. Like I would much rather have my house clean once a month for that price, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's just, it's the mopping and the cleaning the toilets. Like, yes, I can do those things. And for a long time, I felt ashamed that I wasn't getting to them. And finally, again, the third kid, I was just like, I mean, 40 bucks a month is totally doable. And my house is not spotless. I mean, I'm sitting here staring at a pile of books and papers in front of me, but um, to know that like all the floors got mopped and vacuumed at least once that month yeah. is really helpful. So now that yeah. we've gone on and on about the importance of that, I know. Um, but no, asking for help. If you yeah, can do it, it, do it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Asking for help. Because the other thing is being sleep deprived is almost like a silent epidemic because people don't really necessarily know. And if nobody's ever had a truly horrible sleeper, they just have no idea. Right. They're like I, I do have some friends that things have been tense with because uh, like they don't understand how tired I have been, you yeah. know, and I can tell they're like rolling their eyes, you know, and I'm yeah. like, okay, I don't, I don't need that right now. I'm just, you know, yeah. <laughs> some distance, but yeah. if you have not had a truly horrible sleeper, you are like, okay, sure. You're waking up two or three times a night for a year. What's the big deal? Um, right. It's you just, people do not know unless you're asking them and explaining how difficult it is, which gets you varied responses for sure. But yeah, yeah. It can definitely feel very isolating to have mm-hmm. a baby with lots of issues and sleep issues for sure. Cause it's just yeah. like, nobody understands like what you're going through. Yes. Like. Yeah. <laughs> just know that everywhere you ask for help, isn't going to be responsive and right. you're not in the wrong and you're not somehow not handling it well because you still need help. So keep asking. So I have a question. You mentioned your husband, have you heard recently about women needing more sleep than men? Is that a thing that I just didn't know until recently? I've heard that from time to time. Um, I do, I don't know for sure. I do think that there is some truth to that. I would imagine that. So I've been really getting more into learning about, um, like our menstrual cycle Mm -hmm. and how our hormones fluctuate during that time and kind of, um, trying to shift my like eating habits and my, my movement, my activity habits to be in alignment with my hormones. Um, so I would imagine that like when our hormones are highest, um, so like before our period and like around the time we're ovulating, I would imagine that we need more sleep 
that like, we just need more sleep and like we have more stress maybe, or we need more sleep to combat the stress that affects our, our mm-hmm. sex hormones. Um, but I mean, I don't have any like evidence to prove that that just makes sense to me intuitively. Cause we usually have less energy, like the week, like our luteal phase, the week before the week or so it's a little longer than that. But before we start our period, like we generally tend to have less energy. So it makes sense to me that we would need more sleep, but also our, it also often impacts our sleep. So we often have disrupted mm-hmm. sleep during yeah. that time. Um, and then they say that, you know, like there are certain times in our, our cycle where our hormones are lower, where our, our hormones patterns tend to look more like men. And so we can do a lot of the same things as men. Cause men have like a 24 hour hormonal cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense to me that like in those times we might be more equal to men in the amount of sleep that we need. Um, but yeah, I don't know any of that for sure. That just kind of makes sense to me, like intuitively. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And the, the thing about women's hormones cycling every month versus men every 24 hours was kind of eye-opening when I learned that too. So yeah. I, the times that you mentioned though, before ovulation and right before your period starts, I have horrible insomnia. So like the worst thing is when your baby is sleeping and you're not sleeping or like you talk about the breast sleeping and I think, okay, like in theory, I'm fine with that, except I fully wake up every time I feed my babies and have so much trouble. So what do you tell moms when it's like, okay, maybe it's not the baby. Maybe it's me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard because it just depends on exactly what's going on, but like specifically for those times where you might be having hormone related insomnia, or you might just be more, um, more like wakeful, not able to sleep as deeply. Um, one, like, like we talked about earlier, prioritizing sleep. So going to bed earlier, like I have nights where I stay up binge watching TV or reading or whatever. And I make sure those nights are in the first half of my cycle, because that's when I know that my sleep is usually pretty good. Um, I don't, I try not to do that the week before my period, because I know my sleep has it. I just have the tendency to be more wakeful. Um, and so I try to go to bed earlier. Like if you know, you're going to be awake more and maybe have a hard time getting back to sleep, go to bed earlier, sleep in later. If you can, like, don't plan your early morning gym sessions the week before your period, when you know that you have insomnia, you know? So I think it's just making shifts like that. And also just accepting that part, like that part of your month, um, that phase can, I think be really helpful too. Like, okay, this is just, this is just me. These are my needs this week. It's okay that I'm not like running, running, running on the go. It's okay that I'm not getting an early morning workout in right now. Um, so, I mean, those are just examples. You don't ever have to have an early morning workout. I just am a person. I like to get up early and work out, but I don't do that as much when I'm about to start my period because I don't want to set my alarm. Um, you know, knowing that I'm probably going to have disrupted sleep. Um, but I would also like, if you're having really significant, significant issues, there might be some hormonal balances going on too. So I would maybe work with a, um, a, an integrative practitioner who specializes in female hormones to work on balancing those hormones out. And I know like, I'm not an expert in this area. So, but I know that there are, there are foods that maybe specific foods that you could be eating that support your hormones. Um, you know, making sure you're nourishing your body. I know there's lots of debates about like fasting versus not fasting, but you definitely shouldn't be like fasting when your hormones are high, when you're in those phases, like the week before your period, even experts in, um, female hormones and fasting that recommend fasting for women say, do not fast the week before your period, like only fast at certain phases in your cycle. So don't, you know, make sure you're eating well. Um, so that I don't, I don't think anybody should be fasting in like the first year postpartum either. Oh no, not, not postpartum. No. Yeah. 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 Yeah, No. Um, do you have any, 
um what are your thoughts on things like I have like my earthly sleepy time tincture over here for that I take at night um do you have thoughts on things like that or when it is maybe more safe for mom to introduce things like that for herself not for the baby yeah I mean I think it's as long as the the specific product or herb is is breastfeeding safe mm-hmm. um you have to check they're all kind of different in the the safety recommendations but like earthly I know is really good about um, putting on their, their website, if you go to the specific product. And I think it often says it on the bottle itself, but before you buy it, of course you go to the product and you can see like, uh, safety information and who it's recommended or not recommended for. So it will say if it's contraindicated for breastfeeding moms, for example, but as long as it's not contraindicated for breastfeeding moms, there's nothing wrong with trying those things. Um, you know, they can definitely be helpful if it, I think a lot of people will come to me like, you know, I talk about magnesium lotion a lot. Like that can be mm-hmm. something that's really helpful yes. for mom and for children, for babies. Um, and people will be like, does magnesium really help sleep? And I'm like, I mean, it could, it's not a fix yeah. all though. Like it's not gonna, yeah. if you have a baby with red flags and health issues, know that magnesium lotion is going to do almost nothing for them. You know, I think people want so badly to have like a quick fix, but you have to find the root issue. So if it's a hormone, if you think you have a hormonal issue, then maybe taking some hormone balancing and supporting herbs will be helpful to you. Um, but if you have an issue of you're on this, you're scrolling your phone all night long until right before you go to sleep, then those hormone er- herbs are not going to help you go yeah. to sleep. You yes. need to get off your phone or put on blue block glasses or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we really have to look at like, what is the root issue, right? We, we can't just throw things that we think are going to be quick fixes and not really understand what the issue is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, was so guilty of scrolling the phone during nighttime feedings with my oldest because it kept me awake. Right. And then I was just like, this is a disaster. Yeah. But the second two, yeah, no phones in your bedroom, no scrolling during nighttime feedings for sure. Um, What age do you actually, this is a side note, I love the magnesium lotion. What age is it safe to start using on your baby just to see if it does help? You can start it at any age. Um, there are no contraindications. I would just say like, if you're using earthly specifically, that's the, that's Mm -hmm. the one I use and recommend, um, to get the sensitive version for babies because Mm, the sensitive version doesn't have a lavender essential oil in it. Whereas the regular version does. And I personally am not a fan of using essential oils on or around my little babies until they're at least six months old for like diffusing, but I wouldn't even really like want to put it on their bodies, um, that early on. So, um, you never know, like some babies are very, very sensitive to essential oils and people, people in general can be very sensitive, mm-hmm. but especially little babies. Cause their, their, um, skin is just so delicate and yeah. yeah. That is a great point. I am so used to ordering the sensitive one that I forgot they had one that had essential oils yeah. in it. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Do you mind if we dive into a few listener Q and A's really quick? Sure. Okay. So the first one, and none of these are medical advice. We don't know the backstory. We will just give that disclaimer right now. So the first question is, um, can you night wean without sleep training? Yes, absolutely. So I don't think we ever actually defined sleep training, but, oh, yeah. um, you know, my definition, I know everybody has different definitions of what sleep training is. So when I'm talking about sleep training, it's kind of complicated, but basically I'm talking about non-responsive sleep training. So mm-hmm. strategies where you are limiting responsiveness to your child in an effort to um, stop a certain behavior, which is usually crying or signaling, um, anything that like does not feel good to your intuition, anything that like feels wrong in your gut. Um, so those, that's like my very basic definition of sleep training, trying to force your child into a schedule, um, sleep or feeding schedule that is 
not working for them. Um, so in terms of can you night wean without sleep training? Absolutely. I mean, you can shift patterns and set boundaries all the time without, without sleep training, because you can do it in a way that is responsive. Um, ultimately night training is setting limits and boundaries, loving limits, and still being present for your child to support them as needed in another way. Mm -hmm. I feel like you often have maybe webinars on night weaning and things like yeah. that. Yeah. I have, I usually yeah. have a night weaning webinar every other month um, okay. because it's people just want it all the time, but I also have, um, night weaning information within my comprehensive e-courses all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, I need to, I have your course. I need to pull it up probably. Um, I always tell people from a breastfeeding perspective to not night wean before a year, ideally. Right. Is that kind of your thing as well? Yeah. That's my, yeah. normally that's my recommendation. Mm -hmm. I do say like, it's you, if you, and obviously parents can do whatever they want. Like I understand that, you know, some moms are going to have certain issues. Maybe they have health issues. Maybe they are just like, they just cannot do it anymore. Like they get to make that decision of when they actually mm -hmm. night wean. Right. But from my, from my perspective, it's my job to educate families about what is normal. So we know that night, night feeding is normal throughout the first year. And even beyond, we know that milk, breast milk or formula is the primary nutritive source for babies in the first year of life. So, um, we do not get to make the decision of whether baby does or does not need to eat at night. That's just not our place. It's their decision to make. Um, but you know, there, there are ways to start to reduce what I say are non-nutritive feeds at night, um, prior to a year. So I normally don't recommend mm -hmm. any form of night weaning before nine months or so. Um, but then like, if you really need to start cutting back on night feeds, like, so say your baby is like literally waking every, you know, six to eight times a night to feed. There are definitely things you can do to see if you can figure out which feeds are nutritive versus which feeds are not and starting to cut back on some of those feeds that are maybe more for comfort and offering other forms of comfort instead. Yeah. We've gone through that phase with every kid where I'm like telling my husband, you know, I fed them at one you're in charge until four because right. I just need to sleep. The baby can have a sip of water they can have a pacifier yeah um yeah I, I would consider that different than night weaning when you're still like I'll still feed them every three or four hours but yeah not like every single waking um okay so the next one is true or false a baby will sleep better with a top-off bottle before bed or switching to formula my mother-in-law is making me feel like I am my own worst enemy um so no um so the first part of that question was sleeping better with a top off bottle or formula. So definitely mm -hmm. no babies just in general, like formula does not always make babies sleep better. There are mm -hmm. lots of formula fed babies who also do not sleep well. Again, it depends on why baby is waking. So if baby is just waking for hunger, then that's one thing, but is baby waking because of their sleep environment is baby waking because their wake windows aren't ideal is baby waking because they have an underlying health issue. None of those things are going to be addressed by formula feeding. Right. And actually formula feeding, especially if, um, especially if you're, you've like, you're switching from breast milk to formula, formula feeding, switching to formula can also cause sleep issues because it can cause digestive issues. It can cause constipation. Um, formula can be really tough on baby's bellies, especially when they're used to breast milk. So, I mean, obviously it depends on like what kind of formula you use and stuff too, but no. So just in general, the reason that sometimes it seems like babies who formula feed sleep better is because parents are often overfeeding them. And that isn't necessary. Like that's not a, an ideal thing. That's not something we should strive for. Right. Even if you are bottle feeding formula, feeding your child, um, there is still 
a way to feed them responsively, even with the bottle. And that for babies, that is usually less, less um, quantity of milk um, more often. But a lot of formula feeding parents and I'm not saying this as an attack. This is just like, this isn't an attack. This is often because they just don't know better. Mm-hmm. Um, they will feed them big bottles. Their bellies will get stretched out. So they'll be able to take more in at a time and they might sleep more, but that's not like what we've, that's not the ideal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like a top-off bottle. Yeah. Sometimes just generally feeding your baby before bed can help them sleep longer because they won't get hungry as quick. It doesn't have to be a bottle. It doesn't have to be formula. It can be just a breastfeeding session before bed. I like to encourage parents if they're struggling with sleep um, and they're breastfeeding, just see if you can like offer them the breast two or three or four times in that that hour before they go to bed. Um, Both sides, offer both sides, offer multiple times. That way they're getting the opportunity to fill their belly as much as possible. Dream feeds are great too. Like before you go to bed, if your baby's already sleeping, um, pop into the room, see if they'll, you can kind of stir them a little bit and see if they can take the breast um, and get a little snack because yeah, that could fill their belly a little bit if they're getting some and it could lengthen their stretch of sleep. But that's not like a formula versus breastfeeding issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I have never thought about almost like offering them cluster feeding because they get higher fat milk when they are cluster feeding. And so I always tell people often younger babies are cluster feeding before bed, but I mean, that totally makes sense. Just start offering, start offering more, they'll get more volume, higher fat milk. Um, and, and see if that helps. I mean, yeah. I had, I had one baby who probably was not transferring milk well enough and I would occasionally give him pumped milk before bed also, um, to get a little bit of a longer stretch, but I had two other babies that that did not work for at all. So yeah, if that was the answer, people like you wouldn't exist because. Right. And again, cause it depends you know, on sleep. why the waking is happening yeah. too. Yeah. If it's not related to being hungry then, or if it's not always related to being hungry, then it's not going to change the waking. Yeah, exactly. So um, this is on the other end of the night. Do you have any advice for early risers like four or 5 a.m. and they're up for the day? Yeah, so this one is tough because there are many reasons why that could be happening. It's often um, like a daytime, nighttime sleep imbalance. So the one thing I would say is that a lot of parents have really high expectations for how much their babies and their children should be sleeping. And a lot of times, some of our, some, some of our babies will sleep that long. But a lot of them aren't like a lot of our babies are not going to take like four hours worth of naps during the day and then also sleep from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Like that's just mm-hmm. not realistic for a lot of babies, especially as they get a little older. Um, so one of the things to just think about is kind of tracking like how much sleep is my baby needing and getting in a 24 hour period and then kind of going from there and seeing, OK, how many how many, how long are they napping during the day and how long am I expecting them to sleep at night? Because, for example, if your baby is taking three I'm just like throwing out numbers here. I don't even have like an age in mind. Mm -hmm. If your baby is taking three hours worth of um, naps during the day, but you're kind of seeing that they're getting like 13 hours in the course of a 24 hour period. And that's seeming to be about what they need, but your baby's taking three hours worth of naps. That means you can't really expect much more than 10 hours at night. So if you are putting them to bed at 7 PM, you cannot expect them to take 12 hours and sleep until 7 AM. You're going to get that 5 AM wake because that is a 10 hour stretch for them. Plus the three hour naps. So you know, I can't like answer this question in depth here without really knowing what's going on, but start experimenting with like, okay, 
I'm, my expectations are not reasonable for my baby. Do they need less daytime sleep? Can I, can I shift nap time somewhere? Should they be going to bed later in order to have an early or a later um, rise. So those are the things that you might want to look at with that. But then also, um, it's off, it can be like a circadian rhythm thing, like a pattern. And so you have to sometimes just retrain the circadian rhythm. So making sure they're staying in darkness until you want them to wake. And you can do that gradually. Like if they're waking at five, then maybe at five 30, the first day you come out and like, not alone, like you can be with them, but like not turning the lights on and things like that. Um, maybe you come out at five 30 and then maybe the next day you do four at five 45 and then whatever six o'clock, whatever. So you kind of build that up gradually. And like, when you do have them come out of their room, when it's like time to wake, right. You turn on the lights and get outside light as much as possible. First thing. And you make it this big, like exciting thing. And that will start to help them train, um, or retrain their circadian rhythm, but it takes a while. Yeah. Um, I have a question, just side note about wake windows, how much does somebody need to worry about this? Because with my first, I was just reading all of the sleep books and like so frustrated that he wasn't actually like following the age related recommendations. How much does somebody need to worry about an amount of sleep windows versus just following their baby's cues for? Yeah, for I don't think I nighttime? don't think that there's any reason to worry about wake windows. Okay, um, okay. I think it's it can be helpful to parents to have kind of these averages of what average wake windows are for each age. Um, but I also don't love to share that with parents because if your baby doesn't fit within those, it can cause stress. And the most important thing is following your baby's wake windows. Now there are high and low end spectrums, like extreme highs and extreme lows of how much sleep a baby is getting or a child is getting at any given age that maybe you want to like work with some or see a doctor or something to just make sure there's nothing else going on. That's causing them to sleep so much or so little, but those uh, those far ends of the spectrum are going to be a lot higher and a lot lower than most parents think. Okay. So those are, that's going to be like, you know, if your baby is getting like less than eight or nine hours of sleep in a 24 hour period, that might be a, a red flag, but a lot of parents think it's okay. It's if my baby's getting less than 12 or 13 hours of sleep, mm -hmm. that's a problem, but that's actually like within the normal range. Um, so yeah, I would say, don't worry about wake windows, like use them as a guide if you need to, but mostly follow your baby's cues and your baby's lead. Yeah. Yeah, I needed to hear that on repeat eight and a half years ago. Yeah. Hopefully that is helpful to somebody listening who's been just because a lot of times you ask a question online and everybody's like going, you know, like that meme with that guy with the chalkboard and all the equations. And it's like, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Right. So yeah, we do. We really overcomplicate things as parents. It's like our nature, yes. especially as moms, but we need like it's not helpful to us. Yes. It's so anxiety provoking for most of us. Parents are the ones who know their child and their needs and their family circumstances. And their parents are the only ones that can make that decision. I'm all about empowering parents to like take their authority back and mm -hmm. listen to their intuition and do what works for them and what feels good to them. Like, I'm not here to tell you do this or don't do this. But the important thing to know is that babies can't, can't self-regulate. Um, they are designed to co-regulate with a responsive care. Oh, at what age do they start self-regulating? There is no like set age. Um, okay. I have a highlight on my Instagram called co-regulation oh, that perfect. kind of explains this. It really just depends on a lot of factors and, um, a child's temperament and their sensitivities and all of this, but babies and toddlers cannot self-regulate and it during childhood and even adolescence and teenagehood, it kind of, it, it 
ebbs and flows. So you'll have periods of time where they'll, they'll begin to develop some self-regulation skills, but they're still needing parent support. So a lot of people think of it as this like all or nothing thing. They're, they're either co-regulating or they're self-regulating. But the reality is that throughout childhood, um, children are as they're slowly developing self-regulation skills, they are still needing some co-regulation support. And then parents will be able to offer a little bit less co-regulation support and a little bit less co-regulation, but they're still offering the support as the child builds those skills. And then you have a stressful, a stressful time thrown into the mix of a big transition or a big life event. And then that child who once was doing a lot of self-regulation now needs even more co-regulation. So it's very variable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great to know. Uh, the last question here is when do toddlers usually drop to one nap and then no naps? Um, one nap, it's the average is usually around like 14 months to like 18 to 20 months. Um, really just depends. Sometimes it happens a little bit earlier. A lot of times toddlers will fight their second nap around 12 months, but they're still not always quite ready to drop down to one nap. Um, regardless, it starts, it often happens around that time for toddlers. And then dropping the nap is super variable. Um, average, I would say is about two and a half to like four and a half or five. Um, but again, it could be before that it could be after that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so that's, that's the Q and a, and, um, do you want to tell people where they can find you? Cause you have so many resources that people with questions can go to all of your, um, materials. Yeah. So I am primarily on, on social media. I'm on Instagram. My, um, handle is at Taylor Kulik, K-U-L-I-K. And I have a website, www.taylorkulik.com. I have e-courses there. I, um, offer webinars. So if you, I have some freebies linked on my Instagram, like link in bio. Um, and if you sign up for any one of those freebies, you'll be subscribed to my email list. Um, and then I send out, like I answer questions, um, every couple of weeks on my emails and I send out other resources and I have webinars like rotating monthly webinars that I announce there as well. Um, and I also will do like, I try to do a weekly Q and a on my Instagram stories as well. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, and I have so, a podcast. Yes, you do. Yes, I will yeah. link to all of these things. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. So people know kind of where to go if, if they have more questions. What encouragement do you have for the mom listening who just feels like she's dying? She's so tired. And I don't say that lightly, mm. like you do, you feel like you're dying. Mm. Yeah, I would say like, I would wonder what's going on, you know? And I mean, encouragement, like this will pass, it will pass, Mm -hmm. but I don't think any mother should have to feel like they're dying Mm -hmm. because of sleep deprivation. So I would just want to know more about what's going on. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where this is really the time, like you have to get some help. It is not okay to feel like you're dying. Like no mom deserves that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I never want to make light of sleep deprivation, Um, That's not my goal here when I am advocating against sleep training. There's so much that can be done to support moms. So I would say like, you're not alone. Um, You have to get help in whatever way you can, even if it's neighbors, friends, church members, even if you don't have family near you and, um, and yeah, get, get some help, but it it doesn't last forever, but you have to get help. Yeah. We can't, we can't make light of that. Yeah. 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 So this, we've talked about a lot of things and it's so easy to kind of focus on what we're doing wrong or what's hard, what's not going well. So I just want to ask you to close out on a positive note. What's a routine or boundary or habit that is working really well in your life right now? Mm, I like that question. Um, a routine or habit that is working well, I would say, 
I've been trying, I'm, I'm kind of in a sweet spot with my kids sleep right now. Like my young one is, is fine. I mean, my older one sleeps great by the way, didn't after we, the initial (laughs) bout of sleep training, she bed shared and now she sleeps great. Um, Mm -hmm. but he's sleeping pretty decently. We just got into some early rises because we're on like a nap transition, but I've been trying to go to sleep a little bit earlier and wake up earlier when I can to like get some movement in, get some like praying and like some work done. And that to me is always, I know that's not for everybody, but getting up before my kids for me is really huge for me. Like that helps me get my day started. So I've been really liking that. And then also I've been trying to work on getting more restorative time during the day. So even taking like five or 15 minutes to to do like, um, a guided breath work meditation, or sometimes I'll lay down with my son if he is napping that day and just like tickle him and I'll kind of just like doze off for 10 minutes and get up. Um, rather than just like, I'm usually go, 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 go. Like I need to be productive at all times, but that like 10 minute restorative session during the day has been so helpful for me, for my energy level and my mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I like that. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We covered a lot of ground, but hopefully some moms find it helpful and kind of know where to go if they need more help. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Taylor. Thank you so much for tuning in to Milk and Motherhood today. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to some of the things we talked about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends or leave a review to help other people find us here. As always, you can find me on Instagram at happy.mama.healthy.baby or on the internet at happymamahealthybaby.co. See you next time.